0: Hello everyone and welcome to my podcast Count Me Too, a platform dedicated to empowering women of color in their passion for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. I'm your host Amreen Rahman and in this podcast I will be interviewing some truly remarkable women with extraordinary stories about their STEM journey. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Count Me Too. Today we have another very special guest with us. We have Tiana Conley, who serves as the Vice President of Global Cereal for the Kellogg Company, where she is responsible for the $6 billion flagship portfolio with treasured brands such as Special K, Frosted Flakes, Fruit Loops, and Corn Flakes. Tiana started off her career in engineering, having graduated from University of Illinois in chemical engineering. She started working as a senior engineer at Procter & Gamble but has since transitioned to a highly successful career in brand management and marketing. Tiana is based in Chicago and is a mother of two wonderful children, Griffin and Ava. Thank you Tiana for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Tiana, I must say, when I first came across your content on on LinkedIn, I was very impressed because there are not many leaders out there who are such vocal advocates of diversity and inclusion. You are somebody who is obviously a great role model and representation, especially for women of color who would like to advance their careers into leadership and advance their careers in STEM fields as well. Your pathway and your career is is an example to all of us in what is possible. I will start from the very beginning, Tiana, on your journey in your career, going from engineering into brand management. Being the child of immigrants and as an American woman of African and Asian heritage, how would you say that your heritage shaped your worldview and career ambitions?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, Well, just to clarify, you know, my mom is an immigrant from the Philippines and my dad is a Black American man. And so I did grow up in a multicultural household and it was... uh, I would say fully embraced in my household. So I always felt 100% Asian and 100% Black. You know, there was a level of comfort with that uh, intersectionality and fluidity between those cultures, you know, whether it was food or music or even language at points in time. You know, when my, uh, my Lola, which is grandma and uh, Filipino language, Tagalog was uh, with us. So I've, I felt really comfortable. I think it was really when I was outside of my household that I was more aware of those differences because people made me feel aware of the fact that there were differences. Um, so that, that I think is really where the dichotomy between my Asian background and my black background, particularly growing up um in the Chicagoland area, which is diverse but highly segregated. And so um there was this feeling like, you know, black people hang out with black people and Asian people hang out with Asian people and white people hang out with white people, and a feeling that people really wanted to put me inside of my box. And I never really felt like I belonged in any one box. And so that was always really uncomfortable, I think, not just for me, but for other people, because it could never define me um, or squarely put me into a box. You know, I was never, you know, I wasn't Asian enough. I was not black enough for black people. I definitely wasn't white. And so I never really fit. And the implication of that was that I was never really accepted. I didn't necessarily take that in a bad way. I just learned to be really self-assured and have a lot of uh, seek uh, seek my my acceptance from the inside as opposed to uh, seek validation from the outside.
0: Excellent way to look at it, Diana. And I must say that intersectionality can be tricky because people do tend to put other people into boxes. But how do you, how do you deal with somebody who's coming with multiple identities? And our identities really shape our experiences and the way we perceive the world. So the way you put it is so excellent where, you know, we have to first get comfortable in our own skin and look within before we seek validation from others. So that is a that is a really great point that you make. One point comes to mind, especially for me, because I am also a, a woman of color. I'm a first-generation immigrant. There are a lot of pieces to my identity that shape my worldview and there might be some times where we can think that these identities are a sort of a disadvantage to us. They might hold us back, but in reality, they might work as strengths as well.
1: Well, I definitely think there's a uniqueness and in an individuality, right? Um, I certainly never fit in, and that was super awkward uh, as time, at times growing up. Certainly, I... Would be lying if I said as a child, boy, I do wish I did fit in at times, but I would say the majority of time, you know, I, I really did embrace my individuality and my uniqueness and I still do. And it's something that I absolutely do see as a strength. And I tend to come at, you know, problem solving from a really unique way is, you know, I think as someone who is, who was formally trained as an engineer, that's super valuable um, but, you know, you, you you continue to be a problem solver through your entire life and every aspect of your life, whether it's business or navigating, you know, your personal life and the challenges that you face. And so being able to kind of um, step outside of the box and really see things from a unique vantage point, having confidence um, in your own inner voice and being able to trust that, voice um, instead of, you know, relying on on others or seeking validation in others r- really comes in handy, I think, a lot. And that's something that I really have worked on in terms of, you know, sharpening my voice, whether it's listening to my own internal voice or using my voice
0: externally. That's an excellent segue into my next question to you, which is your career. Um, you did graduate with an engineering degree and you started off as an engineer and transitioning into marketing and brand management. And and this is a testament to the possibilities of studying STEM. A lot of young women may not be encouraged to pursue STEM because it might might appear to be difficult. It might appear to be too male dominated and we might not really see ourselves, but having that training or having that knowledge can really help you problem solve. And that's what you have demonstrated in, in your career, graduating with an engineering degree and then exploring your career options. How did you decide to pivot from engineering to brand management? And what were some of the support systems that you could rely on?
1: Sure. Yeah. Maybe before I go there, I'll just go back to something you said, which is, you know, why women do or don't go into STEM fields. I always did love math and science as a child, and I still do, and uh, as an adult. And I never had this feeling when I was younger that. Math or science didn't apply to me as a woman or as a a black person or as an Asian person. Like, I never, uh, I have heard people talk about, like, I didn't feel like I belonged. Like, I, I, I never had that feeling. So that's something I'm glad that I didn't have to contend with. Perhaps maybe people attempted to make me feel like I was not welcome, but I never absorbed any of those messages or thoughts. The fact that it was, challenging, I think, is what was intriguing about it to me. And I I think that's what made me passionate about the field and interested about the field and what made me pursue and keep with it. And and I think that um, I continue to kind of stick with and really like those aspects of my job, even as a marketer today, which are those that are more... um, mathematical or analytically based or problem-solving based, which is a, a big part of marketing. Um, and I think that's one of the advantages or competitive advantages for me as a marketer, because uh, a lot of people have a perception that marketing fields are, come from soft science sciences or liberal arts or very artistic in nature, which they are, particularly those that are more creative in nature. But there is a really decent amount of math that goes into marketing and brand management, um, particularly that aspect versus the more creative side of marketing. Um, so you you really do need to be very good and decent in math to be a successful marketer because uh, so much of it contends with business building. But to answer your question more directly, how did I navigate the change from engineering to marketing? I I think that th- I've always had a sensibility about myself or maybe started to develop a sensibility about myself that when I did internships in, in college, the types of internships that I did were like working in a lab as a food scientist or working on a production line wearing steel-toed boots and things like that. And then I started working um, as an R&D scientist and I'm like, you know, I, I just don't know that I want to. To I don't know that I'm going to progress my career in a way like at some point I'm probably going to have to work at a plant, you know, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know that steel toe boots and like hard hats are like the way that I want to go like I'm kind of like fashionable like and I like wearing high heels and like cute outfits and stuff like that and I'm like that I don't know those two things mix. But I, I think beyond the superficial, I, I also had the opportunity in my first job at Procter and Gamble to get very exposed to other functions, including marketing, because I was doing things like demo development, which a demo is when you watch advertising and they show you um, in a Tide commercial, for example, this sock is wider than the other sock. That's the kind of stuff that I did. And part of my duties were I got to supervise the filming of the demo for the ad. And um, through doing that, I'm like, I really think that working on the marketing side would be kind of cool. And and so I went to my, my boss and I'm like, I, I think I would like to do that. And my boss said, well, you know, I think why don't we let you do a broadening assignment so that if you're not you know successful in it, um, then you could kind of come back in case you're a failure at it. Um, you can remain employed. And so uh, that, you know, that's what I did. But it ended up working out for me. That's, I, that's the shorthand side to it. But I think there were some other pieces behind it. You know, I had mentors who supported me along the way and kind of gave me coaching about how to approach my boss. I had I went through an internal interview process. And I also worked for a company that had a philosophy about um, promoting from within. They only hired people at the entry level. And so because of that, they really wanted to invest in, in terms of making sure that people had great development experiences because they needed to retain their people to develop their future leaders.
0: This should be a model for every organization to, to promote from within and advance um, talent uh, in-house. A very important component of that, uh, that advancement of opportunities is lies within sponsorship. So you touched on the mentorship piece um, as you were navigating your own careers, having mentors to kind of act as that North Star. But sponsors are are the people that get you from point A to B or who can speak the good word or speak about your work when you are not present in the room. And this can often be a challenge for women of color, Um, Getting hired at entry levels uh, is fairly easier because a lot of companies are really looking at diversity and inclusion and making sure their hiring practices are, are reflecting that. But career progression can be a challenge once these women of color have entered the organization. The pipeline to leadership can be leaky. What advice would you give young women to to be able to overcome this? Or is there any solution that employees like women of color uh, in engineering and organizations can work together to overcome? You know, sponsorship. I think
1: that can be tricky and it can be elusive because when people are um, sponsoring you, they can choose to let you know that they're sponsoring you, but many times they don't revealed that they're sponsoring you. So how do you actively recruit someone to sponsor you when uh, when they don't expose the fact that they are sponsoring you? And a sponsor does play a really different role than a mentor. You know, a mentor is someone that, you know, can kind of uh, give you different type, type of coaching and advice. But, you know, a, a sponsor really plays a, a very um, explicit role in terms of actively advocating, for you, and so I think that's a really hard question. Honestly, I mean, I'm I'm positive I've had advocacy throughout my career, and I'm I'm sure there have been times when I've known it, and there's probably been many more times where I didn't know it, and then there's been times where I didn't have it. Um, I'm I'm sure of that too, and so I I think that regardless of whether you have that sponsorship or not, what you can tee up for yourself is advocacy. Okay, and advocacy can come from different places, starting with yourself. I think the number one way to to be able to advocate is to have performance. Um, and when you have really strong performance in terms of your deliverables, it's re- it becomes easier to advocate, right? So when you have when you've done great things, it becomes really great to have, or really easy to have great things to say about the things you've done. One way to ensure that you always have an advocate is to do great things and then always advocate for yourself. So you will always have an advocate if you are your your first advocate for yourself. And I think these days it's important to think about how you advocate for yourself internally, you know, because that it, it is important that you do advocate for yourself uh, based on the goals that you have, and you have to develop effective strategies. how to do that based on um, how your organization operates. So, you know, if you're trying to campaign to get a, an internal promotion, you know, you have to advocate uh, amongst the influencers who um, are driving, making that decision, but it's also equally important that you have yourself externally for your own professional um, reputation as well. As a marketer, I think about this for myself as well, because I, at almost 20 years in the industry, you know, I consider myself a fairly good marketer. You know, sometimes we forget to market ourselves, um, and and I think if you you look at some of the very best people out there, they're really great at marketing themselves as well. So we cannot forget to apply our skill set to ourselves in terms of how we, you know, market and advocate for you know for our skills in pursuit of our own goals, and then. It's also important that you then enroll, you know, other people to help you in that journey. How you do that, again, I think it's uh, important to think about uh, stakeholders inside your organization, but I I think a lot of that's going to be contingent on what the goals are. Again, kind of going back to the promotion, you can have great people in your corner, but if they're not influential in moving the decision um, at hand, say, for example, you're promotion, you know, you can have a great advocate but if they're not influential in your promotion decision, it's not, it may not be helpful. Do you know what I mean? So you have to make sure you have the right advocates for the right action that you're trying to drive. Um so so for example, the advocates you have aren't influential then you have to say, well, who's influential and can I go get that person to advocate for me? I have had situations where I was going after a promotion and I recognized I didn't have the right set of advocates, so then I went and asked specific people that I knew were influential if they would advocate for me and then you know then I said hey would you be on my team would you be willing to advocate for me for this promotion um you know you, you have to be also willing to accept that the person may say that, you know they may say yes they may say no but you know what what do you lose by asking right um you you can't get what you don't ask for And it is also, again, important um, in a world where people don't work for the same company for 30 years to ensure that you have advocates externally as
0: well. There are so many great points that came out of uh, your answer, Tiana. And I, I really loved that piece where you say we have to learn to market ourselves. Oftentimes, just working hard and getting great results cannot be enough because it's a very fast paced world people just get busy and sometimes the quality of the work can be overlooked but being being one's own advocate is, is so crucial and the other thing I that came to my mind is asking so it's always better that other people reject us than we reject ourselves and even you know like the bo- most basic relationship between say a mother and her baby if the baby is not screaming the mother won't know what what it wants if we don't ask, the answer will always be no. Very enlightening for sure to, to have that and, and discuss it in a way where we, you know, it's not enough just to be a good performer. We have to be good in marketing ourselves too.
1: I love the example you gave about the baby um, because I am a mother to two children and my son is eight and my daughter is six. And my children never hesitate to ask me if not multiple times for anything that they need. I mean, it doesn't matter how big or how small it is. Um, They never hesitate to ask uh, multiple times for whatever it is that they need. And I just wonder at what point in our lives do we lose that ability?
0: That's another excellent segue into my next question. Um, And this is an issue that is Uh, on the front of mind for a lot of working women. So we all know that work-life balance can be difficult for just about anyone, but especially for women with high-powered careers such as yourself, it can be difficult not to feel challenged and and having to make some difficult choices. Tiana, being a mom of young kids, how were you able to navigate this and what advice would you give other women who are in a similar situation?
1: Really honest, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I believe in work life balance. I mean, I'm a I'm a single mom. I'm divorced, you know, and so time is real really limited. I think the way that I navigate life is that you have to have a clear defined set of priorities and understand what's important to you and and then based on that recognize that you you're probably trading something off. So to illustrate it, you know, I I'm clear on the type of mom that I want to be and I'm really not willing to sacrifice that and you know if there's an implication to a career opportunity or choice then I am willing to face that if if that's required and and that's that's happened to me when I first had my children I man I I had them back to back. They were 16 months apart. Um, I also went through a divorce at that time and I was so stagnant in my career. I mean, I feel like I was at, I feel like I was like a senior brand manager, like forever. I mean, I might've been, I, I don't know, five, six, seven years at that level. And people I had hired, people I had mentored, people I had promoted, like, past me, lapped me, were promoted past me. Like, I, like, like my career just like was not moving. It was like, wasn't going anywhere. Like, I'm like, man, maybe I've timed out. Maybe I'm not good enough for the next level. Maybe I'm not going to go to the next level. But I, I just, I, like, I knew I was good, but I'm just like, you know what? I, I, I can't, I can't make a different choice. And and I, I know people, and I'm not judging people that made different choices. Like, I just, I'm like, I really want to, like, be the kind of, I want to be the certain kind of mom. And, like, I I was there for every little thing that my kids did. Like, I saw every tooth come in and every first step and every, the first time they sat up and the first time they crawled and the first words and the first time they clapped and, you know, the, the first everything they did. And I just like, don't regret that at all, you know? And even if my career had not moved forward at that point, like, I'm not sure I would like go back in time and be like, I don't know, maybe I would have traded off that one clap to be like promoted. Like I, like I'm a hundred percent sure I would like go and do that like over again. So I think it's just like, you have to decide what really matters to me. And like, to me, like I didn't, like the way that I envisioned it in my head was this, like if I died, what did I want written on my tombstone? Like, did I want like really great brand marketer written on my tombstone? Or did I want like really great mom written on my tombstone? And I'm like, I want really great mom written on there. So that's how I navigate the world, you know? And I'm like, if that means something If that means there's an implication to my career because I like went on that field trip with my kid, then I guess I need to like do something different in my career.
0: You know, your experience reminds me of an interview I watched uh, of Indra Nui once where she said, you can have a great career and you can have family, just not at the same time. Yes,
1: I firmly believe you can have it all, just not all at once. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that applies, you know, whether you're a mom or whether you're not a mom or, you know, whether you're a woman or not a woman. I, because I think it just played out just now with the pandemic. Like, I think a lot of people just took the last year and essentially had like a gigantic timeout and said, What am I living for? And what do I want out of my life? And I have literally just watched a bunch of people. Make different choices in their life as a result. So I think that becoming a mom forces that decision on you in a really violent way, uh, because you know you're sleep deprived and you know breastfeeding and doing all this crazy stuff. It, that's like one of those life changes that uh, kind of forces you into that decision making. But I don't think that's the only trigger in life that can cause you to evaluate your life in that way. Like, I think everyone in the entire world is experiencing it at this exact moment.
0: Tiana, I want to ask you about the whole diversity and inclusion piece. D&I, or equity, diversity, and inclusion, if I use that, the most accurate term, has always been relevant. I mean, it's the right thing to do, to have those different perspectives, those different backgrounds and ideas working together it makes good business sense as well. But in recent times, I mean, obviously, in in light of George Floyd uh, and the protests that happened in the the United States that affected really um, the whole world and it wasn't just limited to the borders of the US, DNI has become a bit of a buzzword for a lot of organizations. Especially now, there's no lack of performative allyship. What do you think, in your opinion, what can organizations do better to improve diversity and inclusion and move beyond um, just having panels or diversity potluck to really have meaningful impact.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. It has been really interesting. And also just to be honest, extraordinarily exhausting to watch and experience people have this awakening over and over and over again. Uh, for the last you know, year. And um, part of what I think makes it a bit exhausting is that there's this expression or thought about, I, I didn't know this or I don't know what to do. And I feel like people do know what's happening and do know what to do about it. I think they do know what's happening And um, why do I say that? I think because if you ask any single person, and I I, I mean literally anybody of any demographic, do you want to trade places with a black man driving down the street in the dark that gets pulled over by a policeman? I think they'd be like, no. And then ask yourself why, then you know why. Then you know. And I think you could ask any, I don't think that's like, I think you could ask anybody in the entire world that, and I think they'd be like, no, thank you. So if, you, if, if, you, if your answer to that question is, no, I would not like to change places with that black man, then I think you know what's going on. And in terms of what do you do, I think people also know what to do on business because they know what to do when it comes to any other strategic imperative. They declare an objective, they put action plans out. They mobilize resources. They put out trackers. They start measuring stuff. They put performance systems in place. They they start um, rewarding people. You know, it's this. It's the same thing. What did we just do with COVID? Like, how did how did how did organizations cope with COVID? That exact way. They immobilized. So. I think people know what's going on. I think they know what to do. And I think if they really wanted to solve issues as related to diversity, inclusion, and equity justice, I think they would apply that same mindset. I I think, so I, I don't think it's a matter of knowledge. I don't think it's a matter of lack of knowledge around what is the problem, nor a lack of knowledge around knowing what to do. I think it's a matter of, do I have the will to do it?
0: Well, thank you so much, Tiana, for your time today. I really appreciate uh, the conversation and your, your very uh, inspiring and insightful advice on, on sponsorship and career transitioning. I really appreciate that. I mean thank you so much. Thank you for having me.